We've been hearing a lot of searingly anti-immigrant language in the news lately. It's hard to imagine, but Mexican immigrants who came to work in California's farm fields weren't always treated as criminals. In fact, braceros were guest workers sent to the U.S. by the Mexican government during World War II as part of the war effort. They were young men sent to save the crops left in the fields as American men enlisted. And they were seen at the time as heroes pitching in, a forgotten part of the greatest generation. Yeah, there were parades, there were parties. that They would have these stag dances where all the women from the communities would dance with these braceros. So it was a very different uh, moment in World War II. That's Mario Cifuentes, professor of history at UC Merced and farm worker organizing scholar. Of course, as well-intentioned as the program might have been, things were never easy for immigrant workers here. This is the story of how the Bracero program became abusive over the course of decades, eventually crumbling under organizing pressure from farm workers. And it's also the surprising story of what that farm worker movement missed in bringing down the Bracero program, told here by people with personal connections to the work. I'm Ildi Carlisle Cummins, and this is the third podcast in the Calag Roots series produced by the California Institute for Rural Studies. Calag Roots is unearthing stories about important moments in the history of California farming that shed light on current issues in agriculture. For this story, we worked really closely with Ignacio Ornelas, who goes by Nacho, and who is a history PhD student who's done extensive oral histories of former braceros. Nacho studies the bracero program, but he also has a really close connection personally to the story. Yeah, so my name is Ignacio Ornelas Rodriguez. My grandfather, uh, Guadalupe Rodriguez, uh, was a contracted bracero from the state of Jalisco. Some of his first migrations to the U.S. were as a legally contracted guest worker. Nacho explained that at the beginning of the program, the Bracero program was good for most workers. Yes, yeah, so so the Bracero contracts were, for the most part, per, put in, that were put in place uh, were very strong in terms of, uh, of, of paying the Braceros a prevailing wage and uh, uh, working limited hours, having a guaranteed amount of work. These are, are, are single men, and, uh, you know, they, they played cards. Uh, I've spoken to some Braceros that boxed, that raced each other. Uh, they, they bet on races. There were dances, there were music halls, there were all kinds of joyous experiences for the Braceros in the 1940s. Braceros made very, very bad wages by U.S. standards. But Bracero wages were high by the standards of small town Mexico. And in many of the small towns that they came from, it was the only hard cat currency that they possibly could earn. And the Bracero program kept some of those small towns alive. That's Frank Bartike. Frank's a former farm worker and researcher who's written extensively about the United Farm Workers. I mean, in some crops, they're like 80% of the workforce. Oranges, I mean, you know, know, lettuce, I mean, you know, big money, big, big, big money crops. The incredibly low wages that California growers paid braceros allowed them to reap huge profits, investing major capital in an unprecedented ag industry expansion. 
And sadly, low wages were just the first in a long list of abuses that the Braceros had to endure. Histories of the program have cataloged these abuses, and we'll hear more about just how bad it was in a bit. But it's important also to understand that the Braceros didn't see themselves just as abused workers. These Braceros, uh, for them, the Bracero program and agricultural work was something that they took great pride in. Uh, it was an industry that they were not ashamed to work in. It was an industry that they found uh, that they could really um, showcase their ability as young, masculine men uh, who wanted to really demonstrate their ability to endure and this, this very difficult, laborious work. One of the former braceros that Nacho interviewed, named Isidro Hernandez Tovar, said this. Era lo, lo que hacía uno en ese tiempo le tiraba uno a hacer unos dos mil pesos mexicanos mm -hmm. y unas cinco mudas de ropa. Era lo que venía uno al norte. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Pero siempre el que venía para el norte pues llegaba y con buen billete y su radio de transistores y, y toda la cosa. ¿verdad? Sí. He said that the goal of migrants was to make 2,000 pesos and have five changes of clothes. Uh, he stated that he saw Braceros returning to Mexico from the north with transistor radios and a lot of other new things. He also shared that the money that he made, uh, that he earned in, in, uh, during the Bracero program in three months as a Bracero would take him over a year to earn in, in Mexico. Uh, and his earnings could be used for a number of things, but uh, something that Braceros often repeated was that the earnings that they, they made as Braceros was, could be used to get married. Frank Bartiki told us that the Bracero story that often gets told is filled with crying wives and lonely men. But there are historical photographs that reveal another side to the story. One photo is of Empalme, a major recruiting center for Braceros in Mexico. Hundreds of men are lined up outside of the gate in this photo. They're waiting for it to open. Frank asks, Are they fools? No, they're not fools. Um, uh, uh, the disparity of wages is so great between the United States and a small Mexican community that people wanted to be braceros. More people wanted to be braceros than could be braceros. The standard story is that as soon as these workers crossed those gates at the recruitment center and became U.S. farm workers, they were in horribly abusive situations. But Mario Cifuentes, the researcher at UC Merced, says it didn't start out this way. During World War II, there was definitely abuse and violations that happened in the field. Uh, but my research demonstrates there was actually a significant amount of powers that Bracetos held. There were strikes all over the country. They were able to earn wage increases. They skipped out on their contracts fairly regularly to go work for what they called bootleggers or people that would pay them higher wages. But as World War II ends, the Bracero program abuses ramp up. So by the 1950s, essentially sort of post-World War II, uh, Mexicans were subjected to the most horrific border crossings when they were expect inspected. They were stripped down naked in front of women. They were prodded. They were poked. They were sprayed with DDT. And all of these things happen after the war, when the labor shortage is probably already over. What really happens after World War II is that farmers don't, no longer have a labor shortage, they have a cheap labor shortage. And now that Mexico has a very different contract with these braceros in the post-World War II era, uh, the level of abuse goes significantly up.
You're hearing a ballad being sung by a former bracero. The song describes a horrible crash that killed 32 braceros who were riding in a makeshift bus on September 17, 1963. A bracero that Nacho interviewed was one of very few survivors of the accident. His name was Salvador Flores Barragan. Flores Barragan decided to work, uh, to return to work in agriculture because he, he was tired of living in poverty and he wanted to make progress in life and, and he, he proclaimed in, in Espanol, right, in Spanish, porque quería progresar. In Mexico, Barragan wrote letters to an important character in this story, labor organizer and adamant critic of the Bracero program, Ernesto Galarza. Galarza was investigating this accident. Flores Barragan wrote a letter about the extreme poverty his family lived in in Mexico. He said that the only way his parents and siblings could survive depended on his migration north to the United States as a contracted bracero. In spite of this near-death experience with the accident, Barragan sees work in the U.S. as his only option. And the bracero program, flawed as it was, was his only path forward. Having exchanged letters with hundreds of braceros that were severely abused, however, Organizer Ernesto Galarza was determined to bring the program to an end. Galarza was a labor organizer. He was a writer. Uh, and uh, he was adamant that the only way that agricultural workers could really uh, fully unionize and create a sustainable union and organize was to, to end the Bracero program. Farm worker organizers in the 60s, folks like Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, this is before the official formation of the United Farm Workers, built on Galarza's work and began to organize strikes. They were advocating to improve working conditions, but they were also working to end the Bracero program. They saw the program as undercutting wages. Frank told us about a lettuce strike in the Imperial Valley in 1960 that was particularly important. Striking workers sat down in front of a fence at a Bracero camp, blocking the workers from coming out. The common language through the fence, though, was Spanish, and the strikers and the braceros got to talking. Sure enough, after a while, some of the braceros start climbing over the fence and joining the city. This was the beginning of the ending of the bracero program, as far as I'm concerned. This is what, this is when the growers think, oh, this baby's more trouble than it's worth. So, with pressure mounting on the program from a lot of different fronts, in 1963, Congress decided not to extend the Bracero program, and it died. The yeah. standard view has been that the uh, victory over the Bracero program really had nothing to do with um, the struggle of farm workers. That it was basically a um, victory that was won as a result of the power of the civil rights movement and the power of liberal America. But... It's an insult to farm workers to write them out of that story and to have it just be sort of a liberal, a liberal um, movement that won in Washington. Galarza's decades of organizing work came to a head, helping to launch the careers of Dolores Huerta and Cesar Chavez and solidifying the standing of the United Farm Workers Union. But the story doesn't end there. Unfortunately, there's a bit of a dark side to this work that we also have to talk about. You know, again, Galarza's born in Mexico. He's clearly Mexican. Eventually, he becomes a citizen. Uh, but he's, he, he, he's, he's very condescending towards 
the undocumented worker and the workers that are coming from Mexico who, who are not documented to work, but also very critical of the ones that are coming here legally, the braceros. And so for me, that's, yeah, an ugly uh, hypocrisy that I see in, in his philosophical thinking, I suppose. Working to end the bracero program wasn't necessarily good for braceros themselves. As Mario told me, braceros aren't going to say, yeah, do away with this program and I'll just come across undocumented. When they were fighting for the program, they were fighting to enforce the rules within the program, not to end it. Yes, yeah, so uh, as hard as Galarza is working to expose labor abuse, and as hard as the UFW is fighting for better conditions for workers, both Ernesto Galarza and the UFW end up taking anti-immigrant positions that are documented in the archive. The Mexican-American farm workers, it was the original base of the UFW, feels threatened by the new immigrants. And to a certain extent, new immigrants scabbed on the first strike. And so the UFW takes a position against undocumented workers, or as they call them in their official publication, El Macriado, wetbacks. It's pretty depressing and really jarring to hear that racial slur. And it's really obvious that Chavez was on the wrong side of history using that kind of language. But at the time, some people saw what the UFW was doing in the early days as good, smart union organizing. Don Villarejo, the founder of the California Institute for Rural Studies, put it this way. What was Cesar trying to do? What Cesar was trying to do, I thought was brilliant. And that is he was saying, I want to talk with settled, legal, Mexican-American workers. Families, not individual workers, families. That is a stable group of people that you can rely upon in the long run. He knew it was going to take a long time. He knew it was going to be hard. But if you can build up a base of support in that population that is stable and committed for the long run, then you have a chance. And I thought that was brilliant. So here's the tension. The organizers who built on the foundation that Galarza laid felt that they had to shore up the labor pool in order to organize. They thought they couldn't get any wins for workers if there was an unlimited supply of immigrants who could always just undercut them. And here's where the story of Braceros and the story of farm workers organized by the UFW starts to split. Many Braceros became undocumented workers as the UFW entered its heyday. During this time, the UFW won sharp rises in wages for farm workers who were legal citizens, but they also fought hard to stop the flow of immigrants from Mexico. Organizers also worked hard to create pathways up and out of farm work. Nacho says that was really important, and it also missed something. He argues that Braceros and the generations of farm workers that followed them were incredibly proud of their strength. So agriculture wasn't seen as dirty backwards work. Um, Braceros knew that there, there, there was skill involved, uh, even if employers called them unskilled workers, obviously, which they still do, right? Uh, some of the Braceros I talked to have told me, uh, hey, you try it. You try this work. You know, my uncles or when they came home and they were, they were full of mud and my mother was dragging her feet. Uh, once again, it was very hard work, but it, but it wasn't about like, you know, feeling sad for me, it was about like, look what I accomplished today. You know, they could show physically like what they had done and how hard it was. And they were. Mario weighs in on this also. 
farm work is often thought about as a transitory job, right? It's a step ladder to something else. And I always found that really odd. Coming from a farm working family, my dad's not happier anywhere than when he is working outside in the fields. He got a job working construction and he would come home five o'clock, six o'clock at night, and he would go to work on his garden. Even well after the peak of the UFW, in the places where farm workers were organized, conditions were good. Gustavo Aguirre was a UFW union organizer who told me just how easy it was to hold a union election at this time. The biggest obstacle was whether or not you had enough pens for everybody to vote. By the time Gustavo was organizing in the Coachella Valley in California in the 80s and 90s, they were able to provide major benefits. He puts it like this. So I'm a farm worker. I'm telling them, you know, I have holidays, vacations, a pension plan, medical coverage. See my, my paychecks, my staff, see what it says here, you know. Great salaries. By most accounts, the UFW successes were short-lived. People disagree about exactly why, but most can agree that conditions are bad for farm workers in fields now. Here's Gustavo again, describing the current situation in California. I still have some family members working at the fields, yeah. and I have friends, and they share with me their frustrations that they are not getting breaks, they are working overtime, and they don't get the overtime, they don't pay on time, and sometimes they don't even pay them. When I was working at the fields, you know, uh, we used to work sometimes at 120, 120 plus degrees, and no one passed because of that heat. And to me, one of the reasons is if I needed to take a rest, I took the rest. Right now, farm workers are dying at the fields. A recent paper by Don Viarejo compares farm worker wages from 1975 to 2015. Wages are actually worse now in terms of real dollars. So what do we make of this then? And where do we go from here? And are we at a moment where we risk repeating this whole cycle all over again? No, I mean, I, I think we are back <laughs> with another Bracero program. We're not calling it that, right? But we do have we, we do have an enormous need and demand for agriculture workers. Agribusiness has, has been adamant about this. So what we've heard, or at least a piece of what I think we've heard from our storytellers, is that the value we put on certain kinds of work directly affects how we perceive the people who do it, and how we treat them, and how we move forward with any kind of policy. In the spirit of remembering the Braceros, we'll end with a last story from Nacho's conversations with two former Braceros. So when I visited uh, Braceros out in the Salinas Valley and I was doing research, um, two of the Braceros um, took me out to their to their house uh, and <laughs> what they wanted to do was showcase their old tools. And so they had old cel- uh, celery knives, lettuce knives, and of course the infamous cortito, the short handle hoe came out. Uh, and I was visiting with them when 82-year-old Juan Vasquez Martinez wanted to demonstrate his ability to to do the work, right, to thin a row of lettuce using the short-handle hoe. So Vasquez Martinez began to show me how to thin. What was interesting was that Oscar Hernandez Calderon interrupted uh, Mr. Martinez and stated, Tú no sabes de you don't know how to thin. 
And so Mr. Calderon begins and he says, Thinning was done like this. A ver, tiendete, a pata cruzada, rápido, echando chingadazos. Déjame enseñarte. Stoop over, cross your feet, quick, throwing blows. Let me show you. Hernández Calderón began an impressive demonstration of how to use the short handle hoe. At 81 years of age, he stooped over with the short handle hoe, hitting the ground to demonstrate how he would thin lettuce as a bracero. Mr. Calderón continued in a fast-paced motion, quickly crossing his feet and stayed stoop over for about a 20-yard stretch and then stood up, making a fist, and said, Así se desaija. That's how you thin. This story was produced by the Calag Roots Project at the California Institute for Rural Studies. We could never have produced this story without serious help from the terrific audio producer, Aubrey White. Warm thanks also to everybody who spent time discussing this story with us. Mario Cifuentes, Ignacio Ornelas, Don Villarejo, Frank Bardiki, and to the Braceros whose voices we heard here, Senor David Saucedo Salas and Senor Isidro Hernandez Tovar. Thanks also to Gail Wadsworth and Mike Corville at CIRS, and to the Robert and Patricia Switzer Foundation, California Humanities, and a great group of crowdfunding donors who supported this project. Please check out the CalAg Roots Story Hub at agroots.org and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. You might also want to peruse the incredible archive of research on rural California at the CIRS website, www.cirsinc.org. Thanks for listening.